This morning's reading is Matthew 6, chapter, uh, verse 16 through 24. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their figures or their faces, and their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will, will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Ooh, been a while since I've done that. Um, okay, so this is, um, do we have, you have uh, our map of kind of where we at? We showed this a couple weeks ago. We've been working through this Sermon on the Mount, really um, some of Jesus' perennial um, teaching on, on what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to practice the way of Jesus. Um, and so we started off uh, Jesus ascending the mount, and he sits down and begins to teach. We looked at some of the similarities between, between him and Moses coming down from the mountain and then giving the law. Um, in some ways, uh, Jesus is kind of giving a, a new law, as it were, as he says he's fulfilled. Not, not that he's doing away with the old law, but he's fulfilling the law. And uh, a lot of his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is really uh, an expansion of that, of what it really should be. And over and over again, he untangles uh, how the Pharisees and hypocrites and had kind of entangled that. And, and so he, he starts off what people of the kingdom look like um, with this description of these beatitudes or, or what a life of blessedness or a life of flourishing um, looks like. We'll come back to that again today, um, how we are to be salt and light in the world. And then he moves into a greater righteousness and that we should have a greater righteousness than those of the scribes and Pharisees, which would have been a shocking statement because those were the like black belts of uh, Jewish righteousness of, of their day. And so to say that you have to be better than those guys, better than the best, um, that your righteousness has to exceed that. Um, would have really been an attention-grabbing thing. And so we looked at that, what that meant in relation to God's laws. Then we moved into uh, what a greater righteousness in relation to devotion to God looks like. Uh, and and we, he's given us three examples, uh, giving to the poor or almsgiving, um, prayer. We looked at last week with the Lord's Prayer. And then this week we're going to look at fasting. And then we're also going to begin the next section of greater righteousness in relation to the world um, with material and people. And so this is just kind of letting you know where we're at. We're starting to kind of descend um, the, the sermon. Um, and so let's look at this. We're, this morning we are, we're going to look at this third and final example of a greater righteousness, a heart level righteousness that meets Jesus' standard as it relates to God, our devotion to God. And then we're going to look at a conclusion of this section which also kind of serves as an introduction to the next section of greater righteousness as it relates to the world. And so here we have this idea, um, this practice, uh, spiritual practice of fasting. And so verse 16, and when you fast, and notice it's just an assumption that they are, um, as he said before, and when you give and when you pray. And so here again, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen or noticed by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward, but when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you in secret. And so we have these resounding kind of phrases over and over again. Don't do this to be seen, but um, your motivation shouldn't be to be noticed, but God who knows your motivation and knows the heart will reward you um, in secret. And so here we have this idea of fasting. So real briefly, if you don't if you know what that means, it has nothing to do with speed, of how fast you run or anything like that. Um, fasting really is just uh, refraining from. Um, and in this context, it definitely is kind of referring to refraining from food and drink. Um, and so um, there's lots of times that we can enter into a season of fasting. That might be to, to skip one meal. I'm going to skip lunch. Um, my mom had that practice for a long time. She would skip lunch every Wednesday. 
and um, just use that, uh, that time, that afternoon, the space that she would have used um, for lunch to enter into prayer. And so it gives you some time, um, but it also then creates, obviously, hunger. And that hunger in our life does something in us, right? Um, it, it reminds us of our dependency on the Lord, um, that unless you eat, you will eventually die. Um, it reminds us of his provision that comes from him. Um, and, it, and it can create a hunger in us that, that we can relate to our, um, our need for the Lord to actually provide for us in other ways. Um, and so often when I've entered into kind of intentional or more intense seasons of fasting, it's because I really wanted to hear from the Lord about a particular um, decision I was going to make. Um, and so when we um, were considering church planting, um, we did. I spent some time fasting because I knew that was a big decision and I didn't want to enter into that lightly. I really wanted to hear from the Lord um, within that. And so I set aside um, food for a period of time and just entered into, um, used that time um, to really seek the Lord in that. Um, and so there's lots of different things you can do. You can fast from other things, uh, social media fast for different purposes. And there are different purposes. There's different layers of, of why we fast or reasons to fast um, within that. But overall, it really should be that we are using that to admit our dependence on the Lord, um, to use that time really to seek Him. It's not a diet um, in that kind of way, although there are health benefits um, that come along uh, with that. But, um, but certainly for them, it would have been a common practice, just as giving alms and prayer would have been for the Jews. And there were times that they both corporately and individually would have fasted. Um, and back then, obviously, a, a agricultural kind of society, there would have been certain people that would have fasted, um, asking the Lord to provide rain um, in an agrarian society. That was very important. If, they, if it didn't rain and the crops didn't grow, then they didn't eat. Um, and so they would fast on behalf of other people. So you could see how those kind of people would be looked up to and admired. Wow, these are the people that fast for the Lord to send the rain and and uh, we can kind of maybe think that's kind of silly now, but that's because you can just go to Tesco. So again, Jesus isn't condemning or diminishing the value of the practice of fasting. His, uh, the, his concern, again, is the greater righteousness and kingdom living. Um, and he never pits those against real-life practices and habits that are genuine. Because spiritual practices, spiritual habits, are how we are formed spiritually. Um, it's why we're told to do certain things often and regularly because spirit, no spiritual formation happens without repetition. It's through repetition. It's through our habits of prayer um, that God forms us. It's through habits like fasting. It's through habits of being generous and giving away things that we're not clinging on to and hoarding and being greedy. It's by gathering here every single week. It's by gathering in our homes throughout the week. It's by practicing Sabbath. And actually stopping being productive one week, one day out of the week to actually rest and know who God is. It's by taking communion and coming to the table. It's why we do certain liturgies. All of these kind of spiritual practices aren't just out of some kind of ritual. They are to actually help form us spiritually. It's to remind us of certain things. It's to um, form who we are. And so the Sermon on the Mount is very much centered on practicing the way of Jesus, not just give, giving lip service to it, but actually walking the way of Jesus, actually putting into practice um, these things that form us into the likeness of Christ. And so rather than Jesus kind of pitting these things against each other, Jesus is upholding and commending the importance of these spiritual formation habits. But he's doing that, he's holding them up as done for God out of reverence, out of sincere devotion, rather than achieving honor from other human beings. So this is the main theme that we've been looking at, right? And again, Jesus is not saying anything new. He's taking what the prophets of old, what God has always wanted from his people, their heart, their singular devotion, right? So in Isaiah 58, you can turn there if you want to. Um, Isaiah 58 and verse 3, listen to this conversation that essentially Jesus has with his people. And they ask the question, why have we fasted and, and you see it not? That's interesting. They've come before the Lord and like, hey, we fasted and it doesn't seem like you've noticed. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And then Jesus gives them the answer. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppose all your workers. So they were being, 
they were seeking their own interest and actually being oppressive to the people that they were working that were working for them. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. So there's a certain kind of fasting you can do, and it's just useless. He's like, no, that's not going to, that kind of fasting, your selfish kind of fasting. He says, is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Basically, he says, are you just going through the motions of, of this? Is this, is not this the fast that I choose? So this is, the Lord says, hey, you're, you seem to be humbling yourself. You're bowing your head. You've got the whole sackcloth and ashes, disfiguring your face kind of thing going on here. He's like, is that what I've asked you to do? But rather, this is what I've asked. This is the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. A yoke was a certain kind of, um, it's what animals would use to pull, but it was also, a yoke was a certain kind of um, summary of teaching that a rabbi would have. So a rabbi would have a certain yoke um, as teaching. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will, he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness. This light and darkness, hold on to that image. We're going to come back to that. And your gloom be as the noonday. It's funny, the same language, right? Gloominess. He's like, your gloominess is going to be like the bright shining sun, the brightest part of the day. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall rise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall, call, you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. That's Isaiah. This is before Jesus even comes. Look at Joel 2 later on in your own. Same, same kind of themes. Jesus has always wanted a people for himself to whom and through whom he could reveal himself. Part of that is through our spiritual practices. But he says, you've got it all backwards. Your spiritual practices are for your own selfish reasons. And he's like, I'm not going to answer that. This is exactly what Jesus is saying, right? You do these good spiritual practices for all the wrong reasons, that's it. That's your reward. You don't get any spiritual benefit from God at all. That's an empty practice. Fasting rather than be a tool of prayer, abstaining from worldly pleasure and substance, can get perverted into this kind of prideful badge of honor. And Jesus says that's hypocrisy. Now, in our day, I probably, we probably rarely see this problem specifically, right? People bragging about fasting all the time. I, I don't know if I've ever, like, run into that. Our problem is probably we don't fast enough, if we're being honest, right? But the, but the, the principle can be applied much broadly than this. The desire to have others reward you with praise is a powerful drug, Right? It's why we love the likes, the thumbs up, all the social media that were trained like monkeys to try to like, you know, do something to get people to, to respond in some kind of way. So we should honor, we should encourage one another, right? The Bible actually says that we're to do that. We should honor one another. We should actually spur one another on to good works. But also, we don't get a big head, right? We do these things that are honorable. They are virtuous. But we admit that we need Jesus. That's part of the whole reason of fasting. And that it is him working in us. And fasting reminds us of that. It reminds us of our need for Jesus to sustain us. And again, it would be an overreading of the text to say that Jesus is saying, no one can know that you're fasting. If someone finds out you're fasting, that's it. It doesn't count, right? People, like if you're, Especially if you're, maybe if you skip a meal, you can do that without anybody noticing. But you enter a prolonged kind of fast, a day, two days, a week, whatever long. Um, Jesus fasts for 40 days. Um, people will know. Like your family are going to have to know. I can't just have, you know, sit at the table and act like I don't like my wife's cooking meal after meal after meal. 
I'm going to have to let her know, right? Or she's going to have to let me know, hey, this is what I'm doing, or we're doing that together. And so some people will know, that's fine. But Jesus is saying that we're not to broadcast it. We're not to go out of our way for people to notice. We're not trying to do it for other people to think that we are some kind of holy person. He says there's no reward for that. But if we do it for the right reasons, for the right motive, our Father who sees in secret, who sees our heart, who knows our motive, rewards that. So the issue isn't other people's knowledge, but our heart-level motivation for fasting um, is why we do that. And so we see this theme continue, why we give, why we pray, why we fast, all of these things. And we're going to see now how these things are all start to be con- connected together. Um, verses 19 to 21 are really um, a conclusion of this section. And this is this kind of um, perfect kind of summary statement of verses 1 through 18. So what does he say? He says, and, um, verse 19, sorry. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, so if you've been around church at all, um, you no doubt have heard this verse, a verse that's uh, very familiar. Usually a verse that uh, preachers like me used to make you feel guilty to give money to the church. And there is something in that. Not, well, anyway, we're not going to go there today. Let's focus. This is his perfect summary statement because what is he saying? Your reward can either be earthly or it can be heavenly. It can be praise from others or it can be praise from God. And he says only a fool would choose to store this treasure, this reward, in a place that offers no security, in a place that promises destruction, in a place that promises loss. So to be performing one's righteousness for others, to be seen by others for others' praise is an earthly kind of treasure. It, it just it doesn't last. It just disappears. There's no reward in that. And if that's the reason, if that's the sole reason that we're practicing our righteousness is for other people, get my spouse off my case or my parents, you know, off my back, whatever it may be, for the praise of other people, then Jesus says you might actually be in danger of not being a Christian at all. Or you can be a misguided kind of Christian and you live this life of kind of empty, surface level spirituality that ends up being kind of worthless before God. God doesn't even recognize it like we just saw in Isaiah. You're my people. You're going through all the things that my people are supposed to do, but it's all for nothing. I don't hear it. I don't recognize it. 19 to 21 also kind of provide a conclusion of that, but also an introduction to the next state, uh, to the next section. And so verse 21 could kind of be restated this way. Verse 21 that we read, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. But you could restate it this way. What you value is what you love. What you value is what you love. And because the heart, you know, what we love, um, the, the biblical understanding of that, a Jewish understanding of that is not just our emotions or our affections, I love you, but it's the very essence of who we are. It's, it's the center of our emotions, our, our thought life, um, our motivations. It's the very essence of who we are. And so the statement is saying what you value, what you treasure, is really who you are. It's really who you are as a person. And so are you a disciple or are you a hypocrite? Are you flourishing? Are you among the blessed that we saw? Do you live a life that's whole and integrated that leads to flourishing? Or are you a hypocrite that leads a life of disintegration? Your life is disintegrated. It's not whole. It's not together. And so this idea of flourishing that I want to come back to is kind of this concept is represented in, in a few different ways here. And so I want to look at them because they're really, how we understand the flow of all of this is really important. And so the first way that we see flourishing kind of um, represented here is by this idea of reward. All throughout this section, over and over again, reward, your reward who is in heaven, your Father who is in heaven will reward you. Don't lay up treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. 
This, this idea of reward treasures used 10 times just in this section of chapter 6 so far. Now, we Protestants get a little bit squirmy when we start talking about, like, reward, don't we? Right? Because everything's by grace. We don't earn anything. And so the idea of, like, doing something so that God might, you know, do something, for we're like, oh, no, here we, no, 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 prosperity gospel, no. And there's a right kind of like, hey, let's be careful here with that. But reward is a, it is a grace gift, too, that God gives to us out of his grace. He's not required to do that. The scripture is full of reward on offer if we'll orient our lives toward God. And it's, it's, it's uh, multi-layered, right? There's the now part of the reward that if you'll live a life that's oriented to God, the reward is you will actually li- live a life of flourishing, a life that, that doesn't lead to death, a life that doesn't lead to conflict, a life that doesn't lead to strife, but a life of flourishing that leads to shalom, to peace, to wholeness, to relationships that aren't perfect. We actually have right relationships with each other because of our right orientation toward God as well. And the source of the reward is a thoroughly Christian source. It is God himself who gives to us. So we live genuine, whole person, righteous lives of virtue by God's grace, and it has benefits to that. It has rewarding benefits to that. So our motive isn't, again, if your motive is just for the stuff, and not for God who gives the stuff, then that motive's messed up too, right? So our motive is, is for the Father, but because of that, He rewards us. Any father, any mother in the room starts to understand um, this relationship. Our motive is to obey and honor God, but it leads to a life of flourishing. It leads to reward. So this isn't the prosperity gospel, but it's also not the poverty gospel, because we can overreact to these things, can't we? Oh, po- prosperity gospel, don't want anything to do that. Rightly so. But then we overreact to where this life that we live is just this life that is just, you know, that has no benefit, it has no reward. It's this is kind of, you know, like for monks, you know, off, isolated, you know, cut off. And that's not the life that we see um, described in the Bible. We can have this kind of balance um, a, a, just a biblical worldview, right? Because it's all God's decision to do this. Um, and some of this is just logical, right? Like we just know that if you live life poorly, that generally leads to a certain way. If you live a murderous life, you're gonna not have a life of flourishing. You're gonna have a life behind bars, <laughs> right? It's not, uh, it's not the good life. You live a life of uh, addiction, that doesn't lead to good places, It leads to a life of brokenness, broken relationships, normally poverty. Like these things have implications. If you live a generous life, an open-handed life, um, it does lead to um, a healthy life, a a better life comparatively, right? That's not the prosperity gospel. That's just the way the world works. That's just logic. And part of that is how God has actually designed that, that we're to live generous, compassionate lives, and that leads to a life of fulfillment, a life of flourishing. Desiring a reward is nothing to be ashamed of in and of itself, right? And again, parents, um, kids, the relationship we have, right? Like, so, you know, when your kids are little, this doesn't work after a while, but, you know, age-appropriate kind of ways. You know, you have, like, little star charts. Like, if you, like, clean your room, you do, like, if you live a good life, essentially, um, you know, you get rewarded by these kind of, uh, you know, stars on the chart. My, my Lawson especially loved that. He was like, yes. How many stars did I get today? How many, like he, he, he just loved that in that kind of sense. He's kind of grown out of it a little bit, but we got to find a new way to do that. But what is it really that's underlying that? It was recognition from the father and the mother, mostly the mother, um, that, that he was doing well, that he was living a life pleasing to the people who loved him and provided for him. It wasn't just the star. The star star was just representative, isn't it, of what was there. And so we should want to please the Father. We should want to live lives that please our heavenly dad. And part of the way that we know that is by the way that he rewards us. 
And so we need to be good people of the book that don't just overreact to bad theology, um, but we actually know what the Bible actually says about these things. We be confident in who God is instead of just being kind of, you know, sketchy about stuff. Um, and so, yeah, reward. The second way that we see uh, flourishing the concept of that in this passage here is glory or praise. So, um, remember, the, the culture there is a little bit different. Um, I go to Turkey uh, fairly often um, these days with kind of Acts 29 stuff, and we've gone on holiday there. I'll be there again in June. Um, and I'm reminded when I'm there that it's different. It's not, a we- although part of Turkey is westernized a lot, underlying it, there's a still shame honor culture that's there. Um, and so honor um, the, or the praise of others, like honor um, was one of the hi- is still one of the highest commodities that can be um, valued in that kind of Middle Eastern culture. I was talking to Karem, and um, he was having conflict with another kind of person. And so, mu- so much of it, I was trying to understand. I'm like, why? why? It was with another pastor. And, um, and I, I was trying to just understand the dynamic of that. And it wasn't until he kind of talked about shame and honor that it made sense. I was like, oh, that's why I'm not really kind of getting why this conflict is here. Because that's just not how we think and operate in the West. We think more through, like, achievement and um, things like that. But there, it's, it's shame and honor. And this, this other person, um, you know, didn't feel honored in the way that, that he kind of felt like he should in that kind of way. And it kind of led to conflict. So we think about um, honor being kind of the highest commodity in that kind of shame-honor culture that still exists today in many, in many cultures. This external honor is an indicator of internal virtue. So God calls us to live genuine lives of virtue internally, like that's who we actually are. But one of the indicators that that's happening is external honor, right? So this is why Paul says, hey, the leaders of your church, the elders of your, sh- your church should, should be thought well of by people outside of your church. They should be thought as honorable people. Not, not for just kind of show, because that's an indicator that they actually are, that they actually could be, right? Now, can there be false honor? Yes, of course there can be, right? We can give someone external honor even though internally they're not honorable. Um, and, and, and that's true, but that doesn't negate the opposite. That doesn't negate that true honor can also receive um, praise and glory in that sense. It's just an empty, hollow um, kind of honor. And God sees it, right? It's what we just sang um, uh, on that. Uh, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Uh, those things, I'm not going to bother that, but, but I'm going to honor and live for God's um, honor alone. And so there's a difference that's here, right? And so if we think about the hypocrite and we think about the true follower of Jesus, the disciple, both of them want honor from virtuous living. So the hypocrite says, I'm going to live my life in a virtuous way. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. I'm going to give to the poor because I want to receive honor. And the disciple says the same thing. I'm going to, I'm going to live out my life. I'm going, to, I'm going to do these spiritual practices because I want honor. Now, what's the difference between those two? The hypocrite doesn't pursue that from a whole integrated heart. It's not, it's not genuine. It's not wholeheartedness. And he pursues it. The honor that he's pursuing is from other people. So he's, it's bad motives for bad honor or, or empty honor. The disciple pursues these things from a whole heart, an integrated heart. So he's pursuing prayer. He's pursuing uh, living generously. He's pursuing spiritual disciplines like fasting, um, gathering with the saints from a whole heart. He's actually doing that for the Lord to actually grow in his um, life as a disciple, to become more like Jesus. And the praise and the honor that he's doing that for is not for the praise and honor from other people, but from the Father himself. And so you see how those things then would change how we might go about those things. 
Um, whereas the hypocrite is making sure you hear the chains rattling before it goes in the offering. Oh, I'm just not feeling so well today. Probably because I haven't eaten in a few days, you know, fasting before the Lord. I'd love to go out with lunch, but, you know, I can't today. I'm fasting. And the other person just cracks on with it. He just does it. He's not trying to make sure everybody's seeing him and, and things like that. He, his orientation is Godward, not toward other people. And so this is important for us because receiving honor from others isn't inherently bad. In fact, we're actually told and commanded to do that in the scripture, right? So we want to develop a good culture of honor here at Village, but it, it, we want it to be a, a good one and not a, a superficial one. So Romans, Paul actually says in Romans 12:10, outdo one another in showing honor. I'm going to try to out-honor you. I'm going to try to outdo one another. Now, again, he's not talking turn this into a competition. Did you see me out honor some other people? Like, again, that just negates everything that Jesus has, ta has taught. But it's a genuine way. Hey, we should recognize, I see what God is doing in your life. I see how God is using you. I see how you're growing as a disciple in Jesus. I just want to encourage that. I want to honor that. I see how you're serving the Lord. Right? And so we want to do that. We, um, coming up in a few weeks, we're going to throw a big party um, and we have like a volunteer's dinner. We do it once a year. We have good food, um, have a good time together. Just, to, uh, just as leadership of the church want to honor you. I get paid to do what I do. In some ways, I'm like, oh, well, I kind of lose a bit of the honor because I just get a paycheck. Now, hopefully, I'm not just doing it for the paycheck. But so many of you, you serve in the, in the kids. You come here when nobody else is here and you are on the cleaning rota. Um, you do hospitality. You do stuff outside of this as well meeting up with each other to encourage each other, inviting people into your home and, and using your material goods for the good of other people. Um, and so we want to say thank you for that. We want to honor that. Um, and hopefully we do that in a way that is God-glorifying. As we honor each other, the way that we honor each other honors the Lord, and then he honors us. And this is what we want to do. We want to have a culture of honor here. Um, because, again, you can, go, you can go too far on one side, right, we want to honor the pastor. Let's make sure he's got that Bentley and that private jet. And on my worst days, I'm like, that's not a bad gig. Right? But it is. It's a bad gig. Because that's it. That's all you get. At the end of the day, that's it. You, you, you get all that now, and at best, you still squeak into heaven. At worst, you're a charlatan, and that's really all you get. And you spend eternity separated from God, which is probably where I think most of that's headed. But we can overreact again and be like, well, we're not going to honor anyone, and we just all trudge along here. We don't ever say thank you. We don't ever honor people for the, the things that they do for the Lord. We don't recognize what God's doing in people's life. And that's not what God's called us to either. We're to honor one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to spur one another on into good works. But we do that knowing that God sees all and that our heart is really for him. We're not doing this uh, for the honor and praise of other people, right? So Jesus says, hey, you should, people should see your good works, do your good works before men so that they, what? Glorify God and not you. Now, here's a good way to know wh where your motivations are at because there's some parts of living a Christian life that everyone will applaud. Lost people will stand up and applaud. Right? So when I spoke out against the bonfires and sectarianism, oh man, the politicians love that. Want to meet with you? Hey, this is really good. How can we work together? How can we do that? This is great. Yes. Oh, good Christian guy. Good pastor. Anti-sectarianism. Many of you talk about abortion. Oh man, I can't believe this guy's over here. You know, here one of these like fundamentalist Christian guys. So if you're if if you'll only say things or you'll only live out your Christian life where you know it'll never offend, it'll never push back, you'll only get applauded, because everyone, no one's gonna like we we as Christians would stand up and say, listen, um, we should love everyone regardless of race, sex, creed, religion, right? That's what you, we should love everyone equally. And the whole world will go, that's right. Yeah, that's what Christianity is about. That's the kind of Jesus I want to worship. Amen. And you're like, uh, and because that's the Jesus I worship, I also believe um, sexuality should only happen a certain way, like practiced in a marriage between a man and a woman for a lifetime. 
And I, I believe then that God has created us in his image. And so we're, we shouldn't just arbitrarily get to kill people because they're inconvenienced. And watch how you get treated then. And people losing their jobs this week, getting kicked off sports teams. Now, listen, there, there are ways that we need to say that, and we need to do that with compassion and love and with wisdom. And there's ways that you can, you can speak the truth that's not in love, and you're just being a jerk. But if you're never, if you will never say anything, or you'll never practice your faith in a way that might offend someone or get some kind of pushback, then we have to ask ourselves, what is my motivation? So we easily distort this kind of glory hunger that we have, and we begin seeking honor from the wrong sources, and for our own sake, not as the natural motivating reward of God our Father being centered on living a virtuous life. And this is the way of God. This is what Jesus is bringing us into, centered, um, uh, living a God-centered being in the universe. It secures our flourishing now, that's not a perfect life. That's not a, a life without pain. It's not a life without suffering, right? So you can live a life that's flourishing and still have a disease or a disability. So flourishing, don't think about flourishing in the way that we're, our world thinks about flourishing or prosperity gospel people think about flourishing. Talking about like actual flourishing the way that God intended it to be. Living a God-centered uh, way secures that flourishing now and in God's coming kingdom. And then the third way that we look about flourishing here briefly as we start to wrap this up is this idea of hypocrisy, of not being a hypocrite. So our idea of a hypocrite, and it is right, is saying one thing but doing another. That's a kind of hypocrisy. The way that Jesus talks about hypocrisy here is saying and doing the same thing. So we're saying one thing and not doing another. We're saying one thing and doing it, but we do it without a whole heart, without a heart of virtue or integrity. So the Pharisees' problem wasn't a morality problem. They were moral people. It wasn't a moral problem, a morality problem. It was a virtue problem, right? And this is a problem that we can have here. You have lots of people in Northern, Live, Northern Ireland living as moral people, right? That kind of good living thing. The question is, is are you living a virtuous life on the inside? Or is it just the good living kind of life, but we're not, we don't really have a, a, an integrated heart? A Godward heart. And we know, we know what that's like, right? We know, you know when you meet that person after a while. We see through that. And that leads us to then to our, our concluding text, um, which intros the next section, which John will look at next week. Because all this, if we don't live lives of integrity, whole lives, anxiety builds. And so um, we'll look at this next week. But um, verses 22 to 24 then it says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Okay, now, there's lots of things going on here. Um, there's lots of rich metaphor and kind of poetic language, in, and it's rich in kind of ancient cultural understanding of things. So we don't have time to delve into all of it, but, I, but it'll, it'll be helpful for us because this passage is often kind of, I think, understood. What do you mean the eye is the lamp of the body? Um, we understand how the eye works now as light enters into the body, right? And it's through light coming in that we actually, there's reflections, there's, I don't know, rods and cones and stuff, and then you're able to see, I don't, where's... We have an eye surgeon that actually is here. I don't know if he's here. Is Johnny here today? Not here. He's operating on an eye somewhere. There's his wife. <laughs> Ask Johnny. He'll tell you how it works. But back then, they also had an understanding that it was, it was, uh, it was light that kind of came out of the eye, like a, a lamp in, in that sort of sense. And without getting bogged down in the differences of that, because I don't think it, in the, at the end it really matters, what I do think is this. Um, this, I, this word that gets translated healthy the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. That's probably not the best translation. That word is haplos, um, and, and healthy gets to part of it, but what it really means is whole or singular. 
Um, it's, it's an idea of something being whole and singular. Um, and the, the word that they translate there for um, bad, um, if your eye is bad, is, is this uh, word diplos, which we kind of get our word double from, which means consisting of two. So if your eye is singular, it's a good thing. It's healthy. It's whole. If it's double, if you have double vision, um, that's a bad thing. And so let's just see here, because wholeness is this ancient, um, in the ancient Jewish world, takes on many kind of connotations depending on the context that it's used. And in the context of money and goods of the world, this word hapless communicates generosity and kindness, a wholeness that's free from envy, greed, malice. So it's whole person generosity. And so just so you think I'm not making this stuff up, I think it's important that you see how all this kind of works. And so you can turn or listen to me. I'm going to read Deuteronomy 15, um, 7 to 10. Deuteronomy 15, 7 to 10. It says, if among you, one of your brothers should become poor. So we're talking about money. We're talking about the grip that money has on us. If one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you. So God gives you land. God gives you place. Now someone who's become poor in that, one of your brothers, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient uh, for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. Basically, he's like, ah, I'm not going to give to this guy. He can make it until um, he'll be provided for. Um, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. Now, that's, this phrase, your eye, um, in the Hebrew, literally, literally is translated, a man whose eye is evil. So if your eye is evil, your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you, or Jesus would say reward you, in all of your work that you undertake. Do you understand? Jesus is just saying what the Lord has always been saying um, to his people through his prophets. Proverbs 23 says it this way, do not toil to acquire wealth, be discerning enough to desist. When your eye's light is on, it's gone, the wealth. It's sudden, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Literally, that is a man whose eye is evil. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. He's a, he's a person who's not whole. He's double. He's a double-minded double person. On the outside, he's like, oh, yeah, eat, drink, but his heart isn't actually with you. His eye is evil. And again, Proverbs 28 uses the same language. A stingy man, literally a man whose eye is evil, hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. That's Proverbs 28, 22. So this idea of our light or our eyes um, being either healthy or bad, either good or evil, in the context of this is uh, a person who is whole or generous or kind in the context of money and giving, or a person who's stingy and, or greedy and evil. So that's a, a double-minded person, a person who's disintegrated. They're not a whole person. And so your alignment to money, your alignment to material things results in the state of your soul either being in light or in darkness. And Jesus gives us no in-between state of kind of this dim place. It's just light or darkness. Evil is the opposite of a single or whole person, the way of Jesus. But it's a lack of integrity. It's, it's disintegrated. It's, it's two things now. It's what Jesus says is hypocrisy. That's the hypocrite. They're not one thing, they're two things. They want to be seen as one thing, but they're really another thing. And the person who's not a hypocrite is just one thing. They're just one single entity. They are what they appear to be. Which leads to the applying uh, meaning in the final verse then. No one can serve two masters, which is what the hypocrites try to do. They try to serve two things. 
It looks like they're trying to serve God, but they're really trying to serve themselves through the praise of other people. Or we're trying to serve money. Our, our, our orientation is toward stuff and things and not toward God. So one must be singular in devotion to God, not double-minded or double allegiance. Read the book of James. James chapter 4 says that a, a double-minded person like this is unstable in all of his ways. He, he describes that kind of person as someone who's just kind of tossed back and forth on a wave. There's no stability in them. You can't serve two masters. You either serve Lord, the Lord or you're going after material things in this passage. Now, don't mistake that. It has been said that God doesn't mind his people having money. What he minds is money having his people, right? So there's a difference there. Plenty of wealthy people in the Bible, and, and God never condemns them for their wealth alone. It's what your heart is doing with that. And so this isn't just a rich person problem. So if you're here today and you're like, well, I don't have to worry about this. I don't have a lot of money. It does, it, that, that doesn't matter. Your heart can still be consumed with and obsessed with the idea of money, wanting to live my life so that, I, that I'm able to do this, I'm able to do that, or all the things that money buy, pleasure and comfort and security. We can be obsessed with those things and still be poor. I would argue when I've had less money in my life is when I'm probably more obsessed with those things instead of actually entrusting it to the Lord. This is why the people of Israel, over and over, God's people, would recite uh, what we call the Shema. This is Deuteronomy. And uh, he says, this is, what, they, this is what, what he said to them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, whole, one God, one and only one, singular. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your might. You are to be a singular person, not with divided heart, not with divided uh, allegiance, not with a divided soul. And he says, this was so important, and these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk with them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So if you see like hardcore Orthodox Jews, they literally have this little box tied to their hands and on their forehead, and in it is written these words. Now, again, we might have missed the point there. We are to live this way in our heart. It's a heart matter. But Jesus is saying you can't flirt with the love of money as if it has nothing to do with your inner person. It has everything to do with it and often reveals it. And so 1 Timothy 6, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And I've seen that happen in ministry. People get just caught up in their job in, their, in, in pursuing money, vacay, all the stuff that eventually comes with that, and you just see their faith take a second seat, a back seat, and eventually it's just gone. But he says, but as for you, O man of God, O woman of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life with which you were called and about with which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is his Exhortation to Timothy and to us. It's impossible to live for the praise of man and the praise of God. It's impossible to live greedily focused on money and all the things that it can provide and be dedicated to God. Why? Because you will love the one and you'll hate the other. You'll resent the other. This is Jesus calling us into wholehearted, singular devotion to the Father. And when we live that way, it leads to a life of flourishing. God rewards us. John's going to unpack that even more next week. We don't have to be anxious uh, about these things. And so my prayer for us this morning is that we would be wholehearted, single-minded, virtuous, wise, generous, caring for others, especially the poor. Why? Because that's the way that Jesus actually walked and calls us into a life of that, and it leads us 
to a life of shalom. It leads us to a life of wholeness, and it leads us to a life of flourishing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, just the wisdom that Jesus comes and provides for us. Father, we thank you of just the clarity um, of, of your word um, to us. Um, these words are not easy to understand, but Father, we admit that they are, they are difficult to live out. And so, Spirit, help us um, this week. Would you loosen our grip um, on things of the world, of money and all the pleasures, all the things that that can buy, um, Father, because we just see they distract us so much. Father, may we, would your spirit just reveal to us the areas that we are living as uh, with hypocrisy, um, possibly with even the motivation to be seen by others, to be thought highly of others. Um, Father, may our, our, our only concern be for what you think of us. And Father, that, that certainly tempers the way that we interact with each other, uh, with lost people. Um, but it doesn't dictate that. And so, Father, may we really live for you and you alone. Um, may we learn to honor one another appropriately. May we encourage and, and, um, and call out those good things that we see. Um, may we have a, a good culture of honor here at our church. Um, but... But in that, may all of those things be directing um, the glory and the honor ultimately back to you uh, because it is you who work in us even to will to do these things. All of it is grace, Father. And so even now as we come um, to the table uh, to be reminded of that grace, of, of the way that you've provided all of these things for us so that we don't need to be anxious, we don't need to worry. We don't need to toil and strive and earn. Um, we can rest um, because we have a Father who sees us, who knows us, who gives and provides and rewards us. Um, Father, I pray um, that, that your teaching um, through, uh, through your Son um, in this sermon would continue to guide us uh, in the way that we should live. Um, and that that would be not just a life of flourishing to us, but that would overflow, that we would be a blessing to other people. Um, that you would reveal uh, who you are to us, but through us to other people as well. And Father, may, may people look at the lives that we live, and even if they don't agree with everything, may they at least see that we are people of integrity, of wholeness. May they at least see uh, our life that leads to, that is a virtuous life and not a hypocritical one. And Father, we ask all this uh, for your glory and for our joy.